the film is called Cripple Symmetries, and it's actually part of a trilogy of films that are looking at abstraction in music and abstraction in finance and how they might or might not be connected. And another key ingredient in all of these three films is a 1970s novel by an American author called William Gaddis, and the novel is called J.R., and it's a, a kind of um, epic satire of the American dream, and it features this 11-year-old protagonist who becomes this, or amasses this kind of vast uh, financial empire and destroys everybody's lives in the process. So it's also a novel about abstraction. One is called F. Fibonacci, and, um, and the second one is called Solar for Rich Man, and that was here last year in Statements and won the Bulwell Prize. Cripple Symmetries is the last one, actually. The starting point, I guess, was also not to be an adaptation of the Gaddis novel, but um, to try to kind of like score the book in a way, so to take the key themes of the novel. And so trying to set up a process that involved all these real elements, real children, a real composer, a real banker, and kind of throw them together and see, see what happens. In the novel, the second key character is the school's resident modernist composer and he becomes the sort of um, sidekick of the boy. And there's a key scene in the book that the movie really pivots around, which is where the composer takes a class of 11-year-old children to Wall Street to the company that they're buying a share in to have the company director describe uh, finance to them. It's asking questions, it's not resolving them. It just puts some things together and tries to ask, tries to ask things. I d there's no, like, yeah, it doesn't have a kind of a pedagogical, top-down approach. <laughs> there was something plastic about the boy. His eyes, like liquid assets. Dark pools, bathed in the murky ether of a thousand transactions. The film opens and closes with faces, right? The boy and then the, and the face of the teacher, but they're actually performing a, a musical score called Disappearing Music for Face, which is by a um, composer called Chieki Shiomi, again from the 60s, it's a Fluxus piece. And it's very simple, and the instructions are um, something like smile and keep smiling, uh, and gradually, over a very extended period of time, stop smiling. So it's this... Um, kind of painful action in a way. But another sort of formal thread or m method, I guess, in making the film was the performance of some of these radical avant-garde pieces that then are edited in a way that you don't necessarily recognize them. There's another one where the children are standing in front of the New York Stock Exchange data farm and they're performing um, Alvin Lucia's Memory Space, which is a piece where you go for a walk and notate the sounds that you encounter and then you repeat them in a, in a performance of what you've remembered. The faces aspects came primarily from that method in relation to working with the material and with the participants. The locations are all very specific. I did a lot of research about the place of finance. We did a kind of road trip, I guess, where we traced the pathways there's a company called Optiva that it's a Dutch company that rents the masts to the high frequency companies or the institutions to put the emitters or whatever they are discs on the top so you can literally trace a you know, financial line of you know where one deal being made in London and shot 
through to Frankfurt to the Deutsche Bank Stock Exchange. So all of the locations in the film are pretty much underneath um, all of these lines, financial hotlines, I guess. They're like top security, so even when we found them, they wouldn't really let us in. I mean, we did try to contact them to say, can we bring a group of children on an educational tour? No. <laughs> so we, had a, we got a permit to shoot on the road um, outside, essentially, which is a public property run by the council. But um, yeah, like all the time trying to find this thing to go to, to see, to touch, to understand, but there is no thing. Yeah, I think there's definitely like a kind of dialectic, as you say, between transparency maybe and concreteness or, yeah, materiality and immateriality. A blank stare reflecting you back at yourself. In the Gaddis novel also is very much about voice. Um, it's, it is an, it's sort of epic f formally, and that's why he's not a very well-known writer. M many of his novels were um, difficult novels. And so J.R. in particular is, is like a thousand pages of unattributed dialogue. So it's not like um, he said, she said, Giuseppe said, uh, B said, it's like people just speak and they speak one after the other and it's just this cacophony of um, noise essentially and what's interesting is you eventually know who's speaking because of how they speak so the lawyer speaks legalese and the children speak in a particular way and the, the main character has particular voice traits so I guess multiple voices in my film is somehow also trying to relate back to that and, and the idea of this cacophonous noisy, capitalism is like a noisy, mem-polyvocal thing. Fluxus is a part of a wider kind of historical modernist movement that I'm interested in that was basically experimental music that came not so much out of visual arts but more really out of classical music. So composers like John Cage, Cornelius Cardew, Robert Ashley, and I've been interested in their work for a long time in terms of like the relationship of possible like ways of making music and ways of making film and how they might uh, connect. Notation, for example, is very open-ended. In a classical musical notation system, you have a note which equals this sound and another, like a G is a G and a C is a C. And what experimental notation does is kind of blow that system apart so instead somebody draws a circle and then we all three as performers sit together and say what the hell does this circle mean and how the hell are we going to interpret it so I was really interested in that in, as a way of working and a way of um, making films and incorporating those kinds of structures into the production really all my films m mirrors that the composition is kind of in the production and then what happens on set is really the results of formal choices that I've made in relation to the production so the composer that I chose or, or the child that I chose or the location that I chose these are really the key moments of authorship let's say and then what happens when I'm filming is just kind of what happens the moment of performance is live, whereas in the film it's a whole different kind of structure that you're dealing with. So when I sit down to edit, I get very n n sort of nervous and think, how the hell am I going to deal with all this chaos that I unleashed? And I, a certain level of control is like reinserted back into the process, if you see what I mean. All of my films are a little bit uh, a kind of battle between control and... Uh, looseness or more improvised setups. The market is nothing more than a construct of the mind. 
It's simply the name we give to the fundamental human impulse we have to deal with one another. It's us watching ourselves on an abandoned TV set in a haze of static. Cripple Symmetry comes from some Morton Feldman compositions, the name of a track. In a film that I made previously to these three films called The Tiger's Mind, it was a kind of portrait of a collective production and there were five other artists involved and one of them was a musician called John Tilbury and he created the film's soundtrack and in the middle of the film he plays the track Crippled Symmetries plays in a forest on a, on a kind of large set of speakers so it's kind of a, a reference in a way to that film which became like a critique of collective production and I always thought of it as like crippled symmetry like the social relationships as a symmetry so that was the first time that I started to think about some of the ideas of musical abstraction in a different light in a different fashion yeah abstraction in not such a utopian sense so to look at abstraction in different fields so then abstraction in finance for example came out of that experience of making that previous film Viewing conditions of the cinema for me are the best. You know, like very immersive popcorn seats, whatever the whole. And my films are quite linear, so I, I want them to be watched from beginning to end. It's not really I don't, the idea of the loop. I feel a little bit um, uncomfortable with. I feel you know when I show in, in museums or galleries, they often have screening times, for example what the art space gives that the cinema doesn't is maybe um, a more explicit opportunity for process and context to be also highlighted. In the art world it's a space for experimentation and the cinema world is more uh, conventional I suppose so you don't have to go through a whole lot of mechanisms to achieve a funding for your film. You're supported in a different way for the process to be very experimental so that that's for me, that's why I'm situated in the art space, I suppose.